I just convince more people to watch the witch or the vish if you would like to pronounce all the v's instead roddy you're this close to getting me noted horror squeamish person to watch it it's not i am horror squeamish and me as well it's i swear it's not that bad it's spookier than okay it's atmospheric but it's not okay i just watched a terrible but enjoyable horror movie like yesterday or the day before called as above so below and it's supposed to be yeah it's so goofy because like it's this oh i'm like this triple phd and my father died on the quest for the philosopher's stone and i am going to take that quest back up and they're like in the catacombs of paris and then it's just like they descend into hell it was it was so goofy all of this sounds and fun then it was so much Are fun you anti-fun I through the whole thing um and then I just have to get this out. There was one point where they were like, oh, this is a Ptolemaic hinge based off of like Ptolemy's. So we have to pick the perfect rock. And then someone was just like, right. But was that pre-Copernicus? Because if that case, then it's not heliocentric. And I'm just like, if it's a Ptolemaic hinge, of course it's pre-Copernicus. Sorry. My definition. So bad. <laughs> we shout I was out. like yelling. <laughs> Don't go in there, it's pre Copernican. (laughs) (laughs) And Roddy, that just reminds me of like, I'm just, I know that we basically have the same degree, but you've done much more classics work than I have. Uh, But it does remind me of being at a festival with my mother this summer and something got called medieval and I was like, 16th century, England's clearly early modern. And she was like, so what can you do with a BA in English? And I said, ruin your party. That's what. And so I'm like, this is. Literally, I just, I walk around and yeah. I just ruin everyone's time. Yeah. Because. So I... also a classics degree. Yeah. Ruin your party. That's what. I think we're great. <laughs> Hi, Abby and Daniel. Hi. Can you see us? We can see yes, kind of the sides of your heads. Awesome. It looks very it's pretty good. fancy. But you're seeing the back of our heads. We yeah? can see yeah. you. Okay, now we us. can see. It's switching yeah, with your faces. It's it's very high tech. This is so cool. <laughs> oh, I don't like this at all. This is a yeah, this is not where we normally record at all with them. We'll leave it on that, I think. Okay. Uh the mood you've got mood lighting too. Yeah. That's exactly yeah. what I said. Uh, nice. We're making it all romantic for you guys. We, Aw, thank you. I love it. Appreciate it. Well, I mean, gothic is a pretty romantic genre, like in a in a terrifying kind of way, but in, in, all, a, in all senses, in a capital R yes. way. Yes, yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, yes. I was about to say in the literal sense. Rebel against the Enlightenment. <laughs> I have a raven on my shirt, everybody. I just wanted to to bring oh, yeah. that. Hey, well, and a skull. Come on, and a skull. <laughs> yeah, don't let that one specifically for this occasion. Jeff is very on theme. Yeah. Well, let's just jump right into it. This is a little too quiet. It's the Ferndale Library Podcast. It's brought to you by the friends of the Ferndale Library. And... My name is Jeff, and I have not had enough coffee today, frankly. And it's morning here. It's afternoon across the pond for our guests, Abby and Daniel from Save Me From My Shelf. Hi, guys. Uh-oh. Hi. 
You're back. Hello. Welcome We're back. back. We roped I'm you back in, longer. kind of whether well, you wanted it or not. <laughs> <laughs> we no longer sound like we're yelling at you from across the ocean. We actually are in a proper studio today. Yeah, we let you on to the... I was going to make a, a cask joke about them being strapped behind a brick wall or something. Yeah, we, and... we put the, the ear trumpet up to the brick wall. Right. You know? <laughs> um, last, last. We did it back then, didn't it? Yeah, that's how podcasts work. Of Basically. course, I'm joined by Mary Graham. Hello. And Roddy is back. Hello. And my name is Jeff, if I didn't say that yet. And we're so delighted here to talk about some gothic weirdos because Halloween is right around the corner. And uh, if there's anything Roddy and Mary Graham love more than anything, it's gothic shit. I may be a, a horror movie squeamish person, but I did watch Crimson Peak and I did love it to bits. So, uh, yeah, it's give me... Uh, I want an old house yeah. and the moral degeneracy of the aristocracy. Mm-hmm. Um, and if there's a howling wind in there somewhere. When I lived in Boston, I lived in old buildings and the wind did in fact howl. And having been from, you know, kind of a, a residential neighborhood in Detroit, when I was reading the Brontes, I was like, wind doesn't sound like that. That's a that's a fake thing. And then I moved to Boston. and I was like, huh, sorry, the Brontes. You were right on that one. Mm-hmm. Candelabras say more, Mary Graham says. <laughs> yeah, uh, <laughs> I was already. I already did believe in, in candelabras. I am not immune to to drippy wax. Um, I'm an Episcopalian, which is like a lot of the same vibes as Catholicism. So we do. That could have gone so many places. It could- <laughs> <laughs> Candelabras. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Roddy, thoughts on Gothic on um, on the spot? All of it. I love it. I mean every aspect of it from you know the literature to the architecture to the music uh like none of those things really have anything to do with each other but i love them all separately so right tell them what we were texting earlier this week which thing uh when you were talking about the role of women in the gothic and particularly in one of our first texts Oh, hold on. We talk so much. I'm actually going to have to scroll a bit past all of the pictures of our pets. And half of it is stories about how my cat won't let me read about Augusta. Oh, yes. Reading Macbeth. I was rereading Macbeth for this today. And I was just like, I realized how much gothic novels depend on women for anything to happen in the story. (laughs) And Mary Graham responds with the gothic genre. God forbid women do anything. And, you know, that's kind of just the theme going into this today because they really just drive the story none of the texts that we're talking about would be interesting or have anything happen (laughs) okay so let me do some table setting we're gonna be touching on Macbeth. we're gonna be touching on dracula this all sounds dirty in some way uh we're gonna be touching that's very gothic like you don't you feel a little bit gross and you're not sure why we're gonna be touching i feel like Dracula would enjoy it. <laughs> That's yeah. I did I mean, catch. We both have Harry Holmes canonically in the text, <laughs> and we all know how that happens. Uh, I had to I... explain to Daniel what that meant. Oh, you sweet something. summer child! Oh, you didn't get an American-influenced <laughs> education that like everyone's wow, very yeah, worried I that think... the ghost of Harvey Kellogg is going to show up and be like, "Eat your cornflakes." <laughs> so, yes, 
And we're going to touch on Northanger Abbey, but we're also going to uh, properly say hello to our guests. And for folks who did not hear the episode when they first appeared on our little library podcast, I'd just like to throw it out to Abby and Daniel to introduce yourselves, explain yourselves, answer for yourselves, and maybe tell folks a little bit about your podcast, Save Me From Yourself. Well, I'll do what we do on the podcast, which is um, I'll introduce my friend over here first. So uh, T and Crumpets over here is Daniel. Um, hello. Um, T at the bottom of the Massachusetts Bay <laughs> is Abby. So sort of <laughs> thing going on there. Um, yeah, we host a podcast, don't we? We do. Do you, do you, do you want to elaborate further? Uh, yeah, do the spiel. You do it. Okay. <laughs> yeah, our podcast is called Save Me From My Shelf. And it's a literature comedy podcast uh, just where we recap, sort of ridicule and analyze classic literature to make people less anxious about reading it. So we uh, have done many a gothic text, and I think that's why we're back on this show to bring our expertise, limited expertise, the dangers of knowledge. You know, that's what the gothic's about, <laughs> or the limits of knowledge. And so we're kind of living that by not knowing much <laughs> about the gothic. You are coming up on your almost 50th episode. I believe your 47th-ish episode is now beginning a deep dive into Edgar Allan Poe. Yeah, it's it's the first of a two-parter because we mistimed it. Mm. So, um, yeah, we're doing Poe's short stories and poems. And Having... uh, maybe, maybe some of the other texts we'll be discussing today. I mean, Dracula's already been an episode. Maybe one of the other ones will be coming up very shortly. Oh, that would be great. Mm -hmm. I'm excited. Poe is uh, a great place to start, a great place to jump off from. Certainly a gothic weirdo who is a a real human being. Um, Like something that I'm amused by, having listened to the the episode, um, the first part of the two-parter, is that like so much about him is like he's almost a gothic character in himself. I love the theory about how he died, about like American election fraud. I had oh. never heard that theory. That's fabulous. But like when you're like, oh, yes, here is this guy. He wrote really awesome, creepy stories and he died in a gutter wearing someone else's clothes. Like <laughs> that's I don't know. Like I, I, I remember getting that in like middle school and high school about like Poe the man seems almost as much of a gothic figure as like the fiction he wrote. Yeah. Tell us more. How do you get time to write these things? That's yeah. What I'm asking. You know, if he's, if he's living this crazy, reckless life. How is he? How is he also writing stuff? He's a, he's a man of. He's a double threat. See, that's the true conspiracy theory. That's where the, the death is neither here nor there. Yeah, really it's, right. Yeah, it's it's this, like the Shakespeare, friend. Shakespeare authorship controversy, but with Poe. Let's start that here. Let's uh, we'll take it to four chan. Do you mean uh, controversy? Sorry, I've been in the UK a very long time. <laughs> the controversy, controversy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Is there anything in that Maybe, studio yeah, made I, I, of... It's a frame narrative, the Poe thing, isn't it? Sorry to... Is, is, that's any, it, the, is anything in that thing. studio made of aluminum? Oh, yeah. Um, I avoid saying other, that other, Okay, just words. checking. Yeah. <laughs> <clears throat> uh, but, yeah, just tell us a little bit more about, about Poe. The first episode is out there, and I think the second episode will be closely following the premiere of our little episode, but you know, Jeff, yeah. do you have a ghost watch? I do. I always, you know, okay. <laughs> check an invisible wrist watch. Yeah, listeners at home, this Spooky. man is keeps checking the watch that he is not checking wearing. a little pocket chain watch that I don't have <laughs> in a not cummerbund that I'm not wearing. Um, I'm really glad somebody addressed that because I thought I was going mad here. I'm just like, 
<laughs> Jeff's trying to see how many psyops he can pull on us to make this an actual like <laughs> environmental storytelling gothic story podcast. Absolutely. Uh, tell us uh, any uh, illuminations you've come upon, any uh, reflections you have about Poe having dived into his writings and a little well, bit so of his it, life. We'll talk about this in the, the second episode where we do our analysis. But the thing that struck me was he's basically telling the same mm. story over and over again. It's just different shades of the same thing. So I, I think I, in the episode, I call him my little pro recycling queen because mm. he, he, he there's not one trope that he doesn't reuse in about five of his other stories. So, uh, yeah, what what's that about? Was he? Yeah, I like the idea that you would... Um be so fascinated by a particular motif or aesthetic theme that you would return to it. But in the case of Poe, that's like, what if a woman got walled into a <laughs> to, to a to a flat or you know into the wall or something? It's always something disgusting and and strange. And it, I don't know why you would think that would be the thing to address. But he keeps coming back to it. What if somebody had a disgusting eye? Let's let's see how many times I can re reapproach that issue. Uh, it, I mean, they're really important things, obviously, aren't they? But I think it really helps triangulating these stories. Uh, together, you know, balancing them against each other because the more you read them, the more you really feel like you're going mad or he's gone mad. Just he keeps coming back. The repetition sort of lays really heavily on you. Yeah, the compulsion to repeat. Yes. It's a kind of psychoanalytic thing going on, isn't there? Yeah. Yeah. So I think that's mostly what we focused on. It's like a recurring dream. Yes. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> Roddy, Poe, Poe's and cons? Uh, mm-hmm. Jeff. So. Honestly, I was introduced to Poe really young, so I've always really liked him. But yeah, there is a lot that's reused. I'm thinking about, because my favorite Poe story changes every five minutes. So I'm going to pick <laughs> like three of the most popular to talk about um, currently, which is, you know, Mask of the Red Death, Telltale Heart, Cask of Amontillado. And it's just like the same story three times as you just <laughs> so stated. And, you know, especially with the um, the second two I mentioned, like Telltale Heart and the casting are basically just the same thing. Just one's in the floor and it's just a heart. The other one's, you know, in the walls. And I just, I don't know. I, I love it though, because they feel different. Um, well, every because time you read one of them, them's alive when he goes into the wall. Pose right. like, see, it's not always the same thing. Sometimes they're dead before they I mean, go under. And then sometimes, yeah. yeah. If you have siblings, who has not been jokingly closed into a closet in the middle of a game and, you know, screamed for, for <laughs> to be released? Did we, you did you used they, to yell for the love of God, Montresor, at your siblings? I'm an only child, um, so this is research. <laughs> <laughs> I I was one for dramatics at times, and I don't think the things that I would yell can be stated on the podcast, but my parents became aware of the fact that I did listen very closely to the language that they used, and they tried to course correct after I that. I think if, so, <laughs> if Abby and Daniel are going to be friends with Roddy, they should know that Roddy often chooses violence. That's oh, her right. philosophy. Okay. okay, so here's the thing. Yes... But there's so much to it. And we're going to have to talk about choosing violence in the case of literature at another time, Jeff. Okay. So just go ahead and write that down somewhere because I have thoughts. Is this at all a clumsy segue into Macbeth? Can we talk about I it? I mean, God, if we're looking for ch- choosing violence, a tragedy by Mr. William Shakespeare, uh, then I feel 
that's as good of a segue as we're going to get. Okay, I think that's great. Can <laughs> can anyone else help establish why we really felt? I think you called them Mackers at some point. Well, so okay, I worked in a th- I, I was a theater. I'm that I'm that person. I worked uh, at a theater in college. I was a, an obnoxious theater kid in my younger years, and uh, the graduate students at the the theater that I worked at didn't call it the Scottish play. They just called it Mackers because um, I think they put it on the year before I started working there, and so that's how they would just refer to it. And so. I, but also I'm someone who's like, yeah, but like, Will Will Shakespeare, he's like my buddy. So, I mean, so I've done my degree. <laughs> I feel like I've earned that. Did- my question is, what were the, um, the rituals that the theater kids had for if you accidentally said the name of the play in the theater? Can so, we say it now? To lift the curse. Yeah, because we're no, actually not in a theater, so we can. No. Um, is there, is there, we're in a studio. I thought there might be a podcast that you can't name. Possibly a Scottish one. I don't. Are there any Scottish podcasts? <laughs> Not one. No. Not one. Um, so on anyway. I, yeah, I think the graduate students would uh, do the like go outside, turn around three times and spit mm-hmm. thing. I think they did That's, not yeah. usually have time to run around the theater counterclockwise and then bang on the door to be let in. Um, although I did ask them if anything weird <laughs> happened during that production and they said their dressing rooms did flood. So that was the curse of that production. We had we had the same thing. First of all, it's the exact same thing. So that's that's nice to know that the the curse lifting ritual is the same. It's consistent, you know, no matter where you are. Uh, but we had the same thing where there was a there were two plays running at once, and that night, like there were all these technical issues, and the lead got into a coughing fit so bad that the director had to come out and stop the play. So that you know, it's it, the curse of Macbeth. You know, yeah. is it real? No, but. The timing, but is it real, real in my brain? Yes. So yes, I do think that the use of three in the counter curses for Macbeth is really interesting. When you take three and how it plays into the theme of the whole play, so you know, if we just want like a little analysis and how you know the counter curse relates to the action of the play itself. Well, I think but, the listener may also be saying, "But wait, everyone, the gothic genre." That wasn't invented when Shakespeare was writing. Why are you talking about Macbeth on a Gothic Weirdos podcast? Because we talked about this when we were. It was cool. Well, that yeah. Um, Like to which my answer is like, which is spooky, supernatural, and we do what we want, but. And also the you know aristocracy got problems. So the moral degeneracy of well, unfortunately, only parts of the aristocracy because like it does end with this restitution of. Of yeah. kingship, although I suppose there's this Paul cast over it because, like, you know that Banquo's descendants are going to rule Scotland one day, and like Malcolm is not Banquo's descendant, so it's sort of there are some productions that kind of set that up as like I think it's the Denzel Washington film maybe ends. It's been a while since I've seen it, but I think it ends with like Fleance out there somewhere because he's gonna come back. What it's kind of like oh the cycle yeah. it continues. Um, yeah. So. I, I like when they end Macbeth on unsettling notes and not just like, oh, we're off to Scun to to crown Malcolm. Uh, also, there yeah. are, just like the gothic genre, there are various moments in Macbeth where you're like, what the heck is happening right now? Mm-hmm. Um, the scene with the porter is one of them. I love the porter. Uh, even though the porter is actually a fun character, um, also might be the invention of the knock-knock joke. Um, <laughs> and... Uh, <laughs> oh man and then there's also um hecate scene which is 
freaking weird. Also saying her name like that is also strange. Thank you, ancient Greek <laughs> classes. But um, that her role in the play is such a fascinating one. And when you read these or when we read these, I think about, okay, how would I put this play on? And if I were choosing to do so, I would probably either have Hecate be the same actress as Lady Macbeth or the same actress as her gentlewoman, her attendant, who's kind of like in the scenes, but like kind of making stuff happen in the background. So she gets a front row view, but not the front row view. I feel like having her play, having the same actor be Lady Macbeth might be a little too on the nose, but you kind of want her around because she only has one real scene in the play and then she like flounces off to go wreak destruction and you know you want to see her more <laughs> have have the uh the person who plays the porter also play hecate well i was gonna say that because i saw the, a version where the porter was oh, a kind of devil oh, figure because he uh, he oh. talks about uh how he guards the gates of hell yeah and, and that's uh, where hecate is when, in the version i saw it in, in stratford that means it's like Oh. the most authentic check out billy big bollocks over here yeah. it like nice <laughs> humble brag <laughs> in daniel's defense i get that obnoxious like, about the globe like jeff can can attest i was like oh i saw henry v at the globe in, in 2019 like that's... oh yeah i mean yeah, i've been to the globe a few times yeah. as well but it's fine yeah <laughs> um yeah the, the 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 porter kind of whenever a character died the porter appeared and kind of guided them Ooh. to the sort of stage and it was kind of you know had a and it gave him a bit of gravitas rather than just being a sort of wacky, weird non sequitur. So that was, that was I kind like of that a lot. I like but that. Yeah, a maybe Hecate yeah. Hec- <clears throat> as the porter. I like that. Yeah. I'm trying to think. Well, she should be in it more anyway. Yeah. I'm trying to think. Can of- we just talk yeah. about the weird sister chestnut scene? I have to get this off my chest. Yes. No. <laughs> <laughs> Finally. No. Let us. Wait. Please. <laughs> Oh, and then just okay, right. Sorry. So the, uh, just the, because I was it, personally, I was trying it. to think of which version of Macbeth is my favorite, and I think it's the witch version. Oh God. Anyway, the chestnut. The Ronnie, like it's the, it's the witches. They clearly have a favorite snack, and they're mad when you don't share. Hold on, Abby. The witch version. Yeah. The witch version. Okay. I no no I got okay. it. Okay. All right. Yeah, we're all groaning well, in pain. Continue. <laughs> I'm sorry. I feel like because I make bad puns, I should be like your ally in this. But all I keep thinking is it's cute when I do it. (laughs) Fair enough. Fair enough. No, but okay. So I was I was reading Macbeth recently for this. And um, just is this it's got to be a queer reading. Yeah. Where one of the weird sisters is like, hey, there's this chick I really like. I keep trying to like snarfle chestnuts in her lap. She says no that bitch i'm gonna kill her husband <laughs> just like, yeah she's like oh i'm gonna chase her husband like across the seas like he's away at sea and i do appreciate the sister solidarity of one being like oh i'll give you some wind yeah we're gonna make right. this happen we're gonna wreak <laughs> havoc on this family <laughs> but share, yeah share your chestnuts bitch like <laughs> don't you know who clearly controls the entire political life of scotland oh my so. god were they just lucky guesses were they lucky? So, no, well, what you think it's real magic? James the first of England oh, sure no, did. It's, it's ambiguous, isn't it? That's the whole point of the play. It's ambiguous. Or did they just like plant the germ in Macbeth's head? Are they kind of like advisors, like worm tongue? Well, it's the very, I mean, that's a very classic 
everybody yeah. who's read more Greek plays stuff. than me. Yeah. And they predicted but. Burnham Wood. They predicted that Macduff was born via C-section. Lucky guess. Absolutely. Okay, all right. <laughs> yeah, Roddy, you also have to talk about Macduff because we texted extensively about Macduff okay, as well. So remember the last time we spoke where I was just like, <laughs> I pick a himbo every time I read something and I choose that person to sort of be my person. I don't want to make him a himbo. He gives very like Chad, but like one I would actually like. I love Macduff so much. And I actually cried rereading this play because of the scene where he finds out that his family was murdered. It had me just so emotional. I don't know. Maybe I was going through something, but it's (laughs) no, it's just that good. It's It's just, it's like, okay. What I told Mary Graham was that everything that Macbeth does in his tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow speech, Macduff does in four words where he says, you know, what he says, all my pretty ones after his after he finds out that his family has been killed. Like, I think he also asks about their deaths three times. Like he he repeats it. It's not computing to him grasp the fact that his entire family has been murdered in cold blood and then he's just like this someone's just like oh you'll get your revenge and he's like Macbeth doesn't have any kids like he's never no matter what I do to this man he's never going to really like grasp the pain that I am in oh that sweet precious c-section baby I just (laughs) he just it's so sad but um yeah, great character. That's who I decided to latch on to emotionally other than Lady Macbeth this read through. So, um me Banquo's the himbo. Yes. The yeah. Yeah, because I I have to identify the himbo for you specifically cuz you're going to hear me in him mossing. <laughs> but it's it's when he keeps going like, "Oh, wow, so weird that you're king Macbeth." And also my my kids i guess they're gonna be kings what do you make of that he's just (laughs) derping his way you know we'll still be mates right (laughs) (laughs) oh and then i think my brain wanted to give banquo and um macbeth a queer reading i was just like they're boyfriends and then just horrible horrible breakup that banquo did not see coming so i mean like it's the army man of course like that's like an automatic queer reading but I don't know. I just I just had a lot of feelings about Macduff, and I, I wanted the best. So you're them. saying that Lady Macbeth is out there like, I want that twink obliterated? <laughs> <laughs> That's actually her this entire play. She's, I, I know people have talked about her ad nauseum. Like, I, there's not really much I can add about her other than that I think she's, amazing and that she's the best and spot on she deserves everything and i really love lady macbeth that's all she has to do everything she's literally her whole arc is do i have to do everything myself and i sympathize with that when when she finally gets him to kill the um the the king and then uh you know plant the stuff he takes the the knives from the guards and then brings them back and she's like look what i found are you stupid go put them back 
And he's like, no, I, I can't possibly. And that's She's the moment like, where oh I lost God. all respect for him. I'm like, you really did kill the king, but you can't, you can't take it over the finish line. Yeah. Can't mm-hmm. take the landing. The killing a king is probably the hardest part, right? Stop sympathizing with uh-huh. him. I mean, is it? Just easy. It's easy to sympathize with somebody. Because see, the killing of the king actually feels, it happens so early in the play. You're like, well, if it does feel like the easy part, it's all the stuff yeah, afterwards that. that- Oh, anyone, yeah, it's, anyone it's, it's can do that. Mm. the holding that's the hard part, isn't it? You're right. It's yeah, washing your hands afterwards, actually. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> As we all learned we... early in 2020. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> actually, if you do, you can if you memorize the out out damn spot speech and do it at at not a a racing pace, it does cover the amount of time that you were supposed <laughs> to wash your hands for. How do you know that, Mary Graham? Stop asking. A perfectly, stop asking perfectly normal, perfectly chill thing to memorize. I actually in high school. <laughs> so, yeah. This is, uh, presumably it makes you think it didn't work as well, the, the hand washing. <laughs> it's a kind of counterproductive exercise, ultimately. This is the friends group I roll with. They memorize the spot what? on speech and they say, I've been texting about Macduff all day. This is. <laughs> yeah. I miss college, Jeff. What I do you think? How do you think I'm I gonna mean, spend my time? Big Duff is a hunted man and not by his own volition. Like Gothic? He see he sees the ghosts of his family following him. And obviously you can take that as like a very like figurative reading, like, you know, oh, their deaths weigh heavily on him and stuff like that. But there are so many ghosts in this play. I genuinely want to believe that this poor man has the ghosts of his murdered family following him around until he seeks vengeance on the man who orchestrated their murder. And, you know... That's, like, literally the classic reason for ghosts to exist. Yeah. Well, it'd be sadder if he was the only one who didn't see the ghosts, and for him it was only a metaphor and everyone else did see... (laughs) Macbeth sees Macbeth, but Macbeth can't see his pretty ones again, and maybe... Thank you for yeah. making it worse, Daniel. Yeah. Like genuinely, I think I kind of needed yeah. that. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I reckon that the Macbeths are haunted by the spirit of their own child. Is that the thing that's driving them? Because I was struck this time around reading it. Lady Macbeth says, I have given suck. And she's like, and yet if I had to do it again, I'd dash that baby's brains out. And I just thought like, oh, you know, there's a lot made about the fact that they're childless they did have a kid i know in the, in the mm. michael fassbender film version it opens on the funeral of their child and that's sort of implied that that's the thing that drives lady macbeth mad well that would also explain the three different apparitions that macbeth mm. sees because you have the armed head the bloody child and then a child with a tree like a crown child with a tree, which mm. if you want to take that, like literally you could talk about the tree See. representing the family line. And then, you know, thus Macbeth actually has no family line because whatever fruit was born of their marriage is no longer. And that's a really, that would also change the way I see her um, dealing with her bloody hands too. I oh, just well, felt like, yeah. I'm just like, let's, if we're going to make it worse, let's just really make it worse today. <laughs> Speaking of it, isn't it? Oh, God. Daniel, Daniel's going to cry, guys. Yeah. We have to. Yeah. yeah. And Jeff is trying so hard to segue on. Speaking of blood, how about we move things over to Dracula? So, um, okay, so skipping 
over the first part of the yeah. 19th century all the way to the end because yeah. Jeff and I uh, had to look up when Dracula was published yeah. yesterday. Um, right, right after Coca-Cola was invented. Coca-Cola. So people, you can it, read Dracula with the assumption that everybody is lightly high on cocaine from Coca-Cola because interesting. It exists. I just think it's fun. Um, <laughs> I think but, that an original Coca-Cola would absolutely kill Dracula. <laughs> well, his, his teeth wouldn't look great afterwards, would they? Forget the consecrated host. Get this man some original formula. Or get this vampire some original formula Coca-Cola. <laughs> it would um, absolutely wreck him. <laughs> killing Lucy that way instead of driving a stake through her in a very sexual scene. Uh, <laughs> oh, that destroyed me. That killed me right then. The idea of him, like, you know, sipping on a Coke through <laughs> so our episode is ostensibly titled Gothic Weirdos and Mary Graham had an interesting angle. Maybe Draki is actually the key gothic weirdo of the book. Perhaps it may actually be Harker, actually. Oh, no, Jonathan is the gothic weirdo of all time. Honestly, Mina, truly, because she's the one who's got train timetables memorized like for funsies. Mary Graham says um, weirdos abound. Weirdos, but literally nobody... Dracula is arguably the most normal person <laughs> in this. Actually, it's probably what's his name, the peer of the realm that Lucy was going to marry, who is so funny because he's like, wait, do poor people not just flash money at, at other people and then their problems go away? And mm -hmm. Jonathan is like, no, Arthur, some people, some people have to work for a living, Arthur. Some people can't do that. Um, but Dracula at its heart, and I think no adaptation has been able to understand this, is a buddy adventure monster killing story. Like that is about like a buoy knife, a guy, his wife, his wife's best friends, three boyfriends. And then one of them has an old professor who comes in from the Netherlands to help. Like it's the polycule fights a vampire, the novel. Like I love it so much. And simply I ask when I am going to get, a good filmed adaptation of it. Never. Every single man is a himbo. Every single one. As well, which is, it's it's the strength of the novel. It's the heart of the novel. It's just a bunch of beautiful idiots. Battling a race scientist. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's the main thing about Dracula, isn't it? That he just rants on about his kind of weird theories of national nationalities for a long time. So, I mean, if you consider that the most normal person in the text, then, uh, you know. I mean, unfortunately, I, I, do, I do live in America. So if we're running normal on like a statistical kind oh, of okay, definition. Right, yeah. He's just a kind of standard Republican voter then. Is that, is that what you're saying? Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, but like, I just, I, when I, because I reread Dracula on audio recently with, with really good narrators doing all of the different letters. And I was just like, just delighted by the fact that, I don't know, like these people all really care about each other and they're so strange. You got one guy, like forget the bug eating guy. You've got another one who talks into his dictaphone constantly. It is 1897. Do you know how big this, he's talking into wax cylinders. I'm just throwing this book at people being like, look at these nerds, read about them. <laughs> look at this cowboy. <laughs> look, at that guy look at this bug eating guy. Look at, I do actually, you know, Renfield all. Um, but also, but yeah, look at this cowboy. There is a guy from Texas yeah. who shows up. And if he was written by an American, I would be annoyed. But he's not. He's written by an Irishman who has never seen Texas in his life. We love it. And that is beautiful to me. 
Uh, but Bram Stoker did see upstate New York and New England. The real home of the cowboys. <laughs> I mean, there are a lot, plenty. There are enough cows there. Oh, There's no there excuse go. for cows, this. boys. There are more cows there in Vermont there, right? than there are people. There you go. Yeah. Well, you need a perfect ratio of cows and boys to. <laughs> Is that what works? I don't know. Uh, Roddy, thoughts on himbos? Thoughts on Quincy? Um, I love him. That's all. He's it's such a great character. Friend. He's really like, yeah, absolutely. When it comes to Dracula, that's you know. Don't let your wife stop you from finding your vampire boyfriend that introduces you to your wife's best friends. Like, as Mary Graham said it, three boyfriends who also become your boyfriends. And it's just, they love each other. It's great. (laughs) This is like this, once again, the buddy adventure comedy that we all need. And honestly, I feel like Dracula's kind of baffled because, you know, he thought that he was just going to, you know, just pluck what's his face of course i forget his name when we're actually talking about it you know just he was going to be the boyfriend stealer but he ends up in the midst of this like complicated rubik's cube of just weirdos in love with each other and you know he's just like i did not sign up for this and that that is what makes him the normal he's also so weirdly funnily bad at vampiring like he's He's in, he comes to England, you know, because it's an invasion metaphor, and he's so fixated on, like, this one person. It's like, maybe, maybe give up on having the blood snack from the girl who's got the vampire expert looking after her. Maybe go to somewhere that isn't Whitby and snack on someone else. But no, he is determined. Only this blood Capri son will do. Maybe that's why. You don't want to take all those trains. Don't have to go through Middlesbrough. <laughs> Well, he has been studying English geography, so he's, you know, he's like, oh, none of that. It's going to shit myself in a pile of dirt to go bother a bunch of people somewhere else. That's just fine. Dracula's, honestly, no, he's he's a weirdo, too. (laughs) The more I think, he's he's odd. Just, Uh, what an... The name of the book is Dracula. Dracula brings them all together. Yeah, that's true. That is true. He didn't bet on love. (laughs) <laughs> and yet yeah. he also, but he created that love, really, didn't he? Yeah, it's, there's a kind of Manichaean thing going on here. They're, they're kind of codependent. He can uh, create the situation ship that he then desperately wants to moonwalk away from. This yeah. is in his head. <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, it's funny. My I feel question... like it's like, oh, go ahead. Oh, sorry. No, just um, in, in our episode, Daniel and I disagreed over the the sort of bureaucracy of it. I found it quite chilling, all of the the sort of um, shipping manifestos and the ship's log and all of these things, the lawyer's papers. I found that really creepy because, you know, it's, it's tracking this journey and nobody knows what it is. And Daniel found that boring. And this did, is... Did I? Yes, this is against type. That should be the thing you were really interested in, but you gave me a telling off for... I don't even remember this. Oh, no, I... What was my reasoning? What you thought that the, the actual gothic stuff was more exciting and creepier. And I was like, no, the thing that... I liked the slow creeping dread of, like, the building up of these documents and people not, not knowing. When you speak in, like, theory about a kind of... An, an abstract, decentralized knowledge that is kind of following Dracula... That sounds scary, but when you actually read it, yes, it's boring. That's, that's what I'd say. So you make it sound exciting. So full full commendations. I'm Team there. Abby but, on this one because I think the horror of a bureaucracy that doesn't know what it's doing. So like you know when Jonathan is is making these inquiries and they're like, yeah, we shipped some boxes of dirt. Why? So 
but they don't even oh ask God. like is something up they're just like weird question but yes and like i don't know there's something about the oh i can have knowledge of something that is actually much more sinister than i will ever know and yet i somehow facilitated the horrors mm. via the shipping of the dirt i yeah. find that creepy in part because it feels like the most realistically horrific part of the novel it's like mm -hmm. how all my least favorite jane austen villains so and then i know personally the, the the fact that it is an epistolary text is what makes it so good isn't it that that they have to you have this decentralized knowledge that we are privy to but that the characters have to assemble. Who are producing it have to assemble and that you see them assemble it in the great. course of the actual narrative that mina's like all right everybody turn over the papers yeah, it's, like time that. To, the, the <laughs> it's time it's yeah. time to redact some things uh, <laughs> i love i love that i think mina is my favorite weirdo which is a hard call to make because i love all of them but uh you know i went to the organizing profession so a woman being like mm -hmm. everybody shut up and give me your papers to organize speaks to my heart that's what this episode should have been on not gothic weirdos but um gothic organizers because lady <laughs> Macbeth, she's the one who's just like all right you know fos i don't know if i can swear on this podcast go for um, it um but <laughs> but she's like oh the king is here and i have to produce uh, like a, some big feast out of nothing great it'll be done in 15 minutes and we have the same sort of energy with mina as well yeah it's that's fabulous a, that's that's an you know the subject of my next monograph i guess thanks for the idea guys <laughs> organizational labor and the female. gothic yeah. yeah and you could title it do i have to do everything myself I would, I would read that monograph. We'll see so where we go when we actually get to, to Northanger Abbey. Maybe this will become a Gothic Organizers episode. We'll see. I don't want to influence. Jake, are, you crats, are you cats cradling that cord? Sort of, are yeah. Uh, a little bit over here for visuals. No one, <laughs> this is an audio <laughs> medium. We forgot to bring the fidget spinners in. <laughs> Listen, I feel, but I just want to say that bureaucracy thing is an interesting point. Like how many other Draculas are possibly slipping through the cracks? That sort of. That sounds Ooh. interesting. Oh, I mean, it's just when an oversight system allows itself to be utilized for like actual sinister deeds that it's supposed to be, you know, a protection against, you know, it's just like, that's scary. Oh man, right. I can't think of anything happening like that in the world at the moment. But, you make know, make I more hostile. Is that the, is that what we learned from Dracula then? Is that the message? <laughs> I deliberately told Daniel this morning to not needle anyone today, and he, you're coming in. <laughs> Am I? Well, that is really the message of the book, isn't it? As, as Mary Graham was saying, that it's a, it's an invasion narrative or an anti-immigrant narrative. Really, isn't mm -hmm. it? It's like you know, we need to really sort out our border border controls, or else <laughs> things, stop things like this from happening. I mean, it is, uh, and I want to do. So this is the second year that I've done Dracula Daily, uh, aka the the Substack, where you get mailed, uh, emailed uh, the portion of Dracula on the day that it happens because everything is epistolary and so many things are dated, which actually does mean you read the novel out of order. Um, but, uh, and apparently the guy who runs it recently gave a presentation entitled, so 250,000 people came to your book club. Oops. Um, which, <laughs> cool for him. Oh, sure. Um, but, uh, but it's, I, I, what I have, something that I've been trying to do as I like see these emails come through is like do extra reading about like, yeah, it is an Orientalist text. Like what, what is happening, you know, with British attitudes towards Eastern Europe at this 
point mm. in history. Like I think it's it's very interesting, and I do have fun with the with the buddy comedy of it all. But it is also like oh xenophobia and like and race science on Van Helsing's side as well. Honestly, I mean, yes. he's like oh yes, yeah. this man's face. Well, single race science and yes. raise you, yeah. Uh, <laughs> but that's also such a that's so gothic novelly. Like so mm. much of that involve so so much of them involve those particular topics. I mean, we did kind of speed past Poe a little bit, but Poe does a bunch of that stuff mm, in his books yeah. too. Um, I was just telling you someone that like Lovecraft as well. Sorry, Karen. Yes, no, exactly. Um, and I was just telling Jeff when I was in there the other day, there was a recent Netflix adaptation of a lot of Poe a lot of different Poe works under the sort of umbrella of the House of Usher. And I was just telling Jeff about how it doesn't entirely take itself seriously. Um, it has campy moments, moments that I think are brilliant. And some just, I'm like, I'm ambivalent towards it. I had fun watching it, but I was just like, eh. But then I also brought up, I was just like, if you take Poe too seriously and you're not prepared to sort of wrestle with some of those, like not as fun, not as cool as someone getting, you know, bricked into a wall um, scenarios. It's like, you're going to have to like really deal with how he talks about race and his general like xenophobia that pops up when you least expect it. Um, so what I'm saying is that this is also just a very underlying aspect of the Gothic genre. So, you know, mm. it is what it is. Caveat in terms door, of but we still have fun with it. There's yeah. a nice way of pulling yeah. someone in, and there's the bad way of pulling someone in. And Poe is kind of <laughs> leaning on B and E, really. Yeah, yeah. The, the, the bigoted waller. All right. Yeah, so <laughs> it's not the walling itself that's the problem. No, that's that's what I'm saying. That's fine. Yeah. That's, it's all good fun. It's fine. And then someone says something a bit dodgy and kind of ruins the mood for everyone. Right. It can, it can go from fun to problematic. Or problematic. I don't know. Mm -hmm. I was going to draw in something about a pendulum swinging, you know, oh, from that. Oh, I but, see. You know, you yeah. can all I, just I interrupted your flow there. Go That's there. On me. Yeah, it's fine. No. Problematic. I'll go with that. For oh. shame. Yeah, Roddy, you should shame me cuz I like so rarely venture into that territory. Mm. It should at least that this one is the was other, bad. I'm not is, proud of that one. Well, I I like it. I I get gleeful at even just attempts at bad punnery so that when Abby did it the other day I was like yes we were delighted listening to the first half of the Poe episode and being like Jeff from Ferndale I know that guy so. <laughs> <laughs> it's just, you, you should have seen the cold dead eyes of Daniel when I made the pun oh I know that was so, before I even heard it <laughs> he was so unimpressed Abby I've me. seen That's those cold dead eyes at, at <laughs> hourly <laughs> hourly I see them I see them from Roddy all the time <laughs> Roddy does this thing. I'm going to try and impersonate it on this audio medium. Just that look. Yeah, she's doing it right oh, now. Oh, there it is. There it is. Oh, God. <laughs> it's the, it's the I can't believe you have subjected me to this shit. And then it's followed by a sigh. Daniel yeah. did not give an audible sigh. All right. Um, any closing <laughs> thoughts on Dracula? We had a lot of... If you haven't, like, just to the listener, if you haven't read Dracula or if you're only familiar with it from adaptations, please, 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 this fine spooky season, treat yourself and go read it because I first read it in high school and it was so different from what I was expecting in such a delightful way. And if you need, if you're writing something, you need the story to move along. Just put a cowboy in there. Yeah, Tell me yeah seriously. That's <laughs> oh, I would it's love. Long, though. I just say that. It's pretty long. <laughs> Not really. But, I mean. I from the from the it's academic longer, side, it's longer than I'd like. 
from the academic side of things, I'd love to hear from Abby and Daniel. Like when you have texts that have been made into 19,000 different movies, does that affect or None influence the could. way you approach your presentation of them to students? Like, all right, we've all seen Keanu Reeves um, as Harker. How do you get over that uh, hurdle? Nielsen in Dracula Dead and Loving It, <laughs> adaptation, right? Right. Well, I talk to my right. students a lot about this. This is why we have so many uh, adaptations of Dracula, because if you go back to the source text, you can see how all of these have fractured off from it. it Dracula is an endlessly mutable symbol. We can, we can, every generation gets the Dracula that they need for whatever they fear the most in any given year. Um, and it all works back with the source text. So that I think that's why it's really helpful to read because you're like, oh, oh, I see in this version. Yes. That's where, yes. the, you know, that's what Keanu Reeves was doing or in this version, this, mm. you know, that's yep. what um, Gerard Butler in Dracula 2000, that's where that's coming from, <laughs> you know. Nosferatu is disease. Exactly. The, the, yeah, the rats. The, the yeah. Keanu Reeves one, that's like kind of sexual anxiety. And, like and the anxiety of the uh, burgeoning, you know, millennium. Mm. Um, but we, we talked about in our episode as well, it, when Dracula was released, I think there was another book that released the same month, definitely the same year, called The Beetle, that was way more popular. And nobody remembers it today because the beetle as a sort of monster figure just doesn't have that many different ways you can read it but dracula does so uh, you know it's just it's funny the things that last and the things that don't in the cultural consciousness uh here's a segue um i was admittedly uh, a late arrival to being a fan of the podcast called Save Me From My Shelf because Mary Graham and Roddy introduced me to this podcast and the first episode. you were going to say because you hated the first like, The first <laughs> episode <laughs> that I listened to uh, as a new fan was episode number 23, which was Pride and Prejudice. Um, that gives me my Jane Austen. So you've obviously covered Jane Austen before. Now I want to segue into Jane. Let us now move into what is truly the most horrible experience we will be discussing on the podcast today, the experience of being a 17-year-old girl. North Anger <laughs> Abby with Mary Graham's favorite character from literature. OG Hot Priest, Henry John Dilney. I was going to say oh, John Thorpe. Oh. John Thorpe can die by my sword. Okay, well, there we go. All right, so there's my Jane Austen table setting. Take it away. So Northanger Abbey is my favorite underrated Jane Austen novel. Um, (laughs) It was published after she died. And uh, she, I think, had been in the midst of revising it. And it kind of shows because it's not the strongest pacing uh, of Mm. of her writing. Um, I actually find the bath sections fairly boring. But is it ostentatious? No. It is one of the least ostentatious of her books. Hmm. You're not going to get me to break. Okay. Um, so, <laughs> uh, so Northanger Abbey is about uh, Catherine Moreland, uh, who's 17 years old and from an aggressively normal family uh, from like right outside Salisbury. And she has neighbors who are going to bath to take the waters and stuff. And they're like, hey, oldest daughter of neighboring family who never gets to go out anywhere or do anything because there's nothing to do here. Would you like to come with us to bath? And Catherine, who is about 200 years too early to be terminally online, and yet somehow is a terminally Mm. online girl (laughs) in the early 1800s, is like, fuck yeah, I want to go to bath. And uh, when in bath, 
Uh, she meets a variety of people, including John Thorpe, who you may know from your own personal life as man who is obnoxious about his car and boy who takes his hands <laughs> off of the steering wheel when he's driving you because he likes scaring you. Um, but put him in the 18th century. So it's a, it's a carriage and horses. Um, and his sister, Isabella, who's like a kind of classic she's almost a mean girl she's definitely a friend of me um and she's like oh Catherine, nothing will ever you know supplant our friendship and men are stupid oh look a man like th that is how she goes uh and then also Catherine meets henry tilney who is uh is he OG a little is he a little gothic priest, og hot, hot priest. priest he's a clergyman from like shropshire gloucestershire wherever they live we're talking mm -hmm. andrew scott here ladies so I imagine him more as James Norton of Grantchester fame. Um, of course. Of course. Uh, wrong century, but I think the vibe is slightly better. Um, and the funny thing is, Roddy and I have been texting about this as well. Uh, Catherine filters everything through the gothic in her mind, um, except everything mm -hmm. that happens to her is aggressively normal. So eventually she gets invited to Henry's family home and uh, meets his father. She becomes friends with his sister and it becomes very, who's that guy? I think he did kill his wife. Um, as John Mulaney once said, like Catherine becomes convinced that like the reason Henry's mother is dead is that she's either like either Henry's father killed her. Or, like she's been locked up Jane Eyre style, even though Jane Eyre doesn't exist yet. And, uh, and yet, and, and eventually like, she confesses this to Henry and Henry is like, okay, so it's time to log off. Um, but also she's wrong about everything, but she's also right about everything because Henry's father is terrible. And uh, as Roddy even pointed out to me, she gets abducted in the first half of the novel. Like she goes on an outing with the Thorpes. And at one point she's like, I am not enjoying this. I would like to get out of this carriage, please. Like before we leave Bath, like I just saw people on the street that I have obligations to like, let me out. And they're like, no. And uh, I had never yeah, even kidnaps her ass. Yeah, they do. Yeah. Like it, it's and like every time I reread Northanger, I find more and more that because Austin is is like clearly like taking the piss out of the gothic genre, but also has a lot of affection for it um, and is figuring out like like gothic trope, but make it as mundane as you possibly can. Mm -hmm. And in a way that I just find really funny. Um, but Catherine is such a weird, weird 17-year-old, and I love her. I wanted to ask about the idea of sort of contagion and the novel in this, because I, was, I thought Austen's message was maybe a little bit muddled. Because as you're saying, she clearly like loves the Gothic. You have to love it, something to be able to sort of riff on it this much. But, you know, there, in this period, doctors were sort of like, ooh, be careful with the Gothic. It might drive you mad. And, you know, it's, it has a sort of... A pathological component and that's a little bit borne out with Catherine like it, it kind of rots her brain a little bit you know mm -hmm. she has to step away from it and she's like books are okay as books but just remember mm -hmm. their books and be careful with them and I, I just kind of thought that's a that's an interesting um thing for an author to say to sort of lean into the like actually yeah so we shouldn't actually believe the message of the book. So is that, is that sort of, is, is a book saying like, you know, don't read it. Don't believe anything you read in books except this. Is that, is that, is that what we're meant to learn? I well, think that's what I'm wondering. Yeah. And I was thinking about it too, because like in the U S right now, we're living in a hell of book bans and moral panic and kind of a fear of social contagion. Like, Oh, like, Oh, if your kids read books about gay people, they will become gay is 
I think, the ultimate fear. Um, and so I was thinking about that on this reread. And I think... I think what Austin is at least trying to do, because it's a pattern that you see in in other books like Pride and Prejudice or Emma, which I've like done papers on, like arguing that they actually are very capital R romantic. Like it's not that like Austin is a romantic author, not just as an accident of timing. It's not just like, oh, she happened like she's really a an 18th century, you know, very proper novel of manners person who just happened to be like writing too late. Like I think she is actually a capital R romantic novelist. Um, and and so I think what she's trying to do in Northanger Abbey is it is a novel of education. Like Catherine is so young and so sheltered that like this is her first foray out into the world where she's like, oh, this is how it actually works. Like you also see throughout the book that she has such a hard time putting herself into someone else's shoes. And Henry even comments on this where he's like, you are looking at the situation about how you would act in this situation and you are an almost aggressively decent person. Mm -hmm. So you are not going to act the same way that my trash brother is going to act. Like you need to think about what if I were a trash lieutenant or captain or whatever he is, and then like work through it that way. And this is Catherine, like just does not compute for her. So in, in part because, and I kind of wonder how much more polished this book would have become if she'd had more time to revise it before she died. Because I think she's trying to get at that kind of novel of like social education, but she also, there's a really funny bit at the end where Catherine's like, oh, okay, so like books are just books and clearly these these kinds of things only happen in Italy to Catholics. Like, <laughs> which I found was very, very funny because you see her making this just like, you know, bit of progress, which I also feel is sort of clapping back at, I don't know, the Pamela's of the world who suddenly everything is perfect and bright and cheery at the end. And you're kind of just like, nope, Catherine is just, again, a regular 18-year-old human <laughs> who will probably one day figure out that it doesn't really necessarily happen in Italy to Catholics either. But right now we're going to start with Anglicans in England. <laughs> Roddy. The, um, you can see that she's really on the on the, the kind of hinge between kind of sort of early modern novels and then the kind of modern 19th century novel, can't you? Because a lot of like Emma, Pride and Prejudice are very much about, like you say, a kind of interior view of oneself that is proven to be wrong or mm -hmm. needs to be kind of ironed out with reality. So it's kind of much more explicitly psych psychological. Whereas Northanger Abbey, that's kind of projected into book books and kind of an obsession with reading. And it's, it's, it's more like a kind of Don Quixote or female Quixote sort of, um, it's in that sort of tradition. And it feels, in that way, it feels almost like a throwback. But then because, like you were saying, because um, Catherine, these stories are essentially the same. I mean, they, I don't want to be down on Jane Austen, right? but they all are about somebody being wrong and then realizing actually, you know, not to be wrong. But you see, you see this point of convergence, if you know what I mean. I feel mm. like that's mm. something that's going on there in terms of literary history. Interesting. I was wondering as well what um, a sort of gothic tropes Austen was playing with in this that she was recreating, because in form it's not gothic, but there are definitely things she she winks at. Um, I, I was wondering about especially the sort of gothic subversion of incest between the Thorps. I don't. I feel like there's something going on between them Actually, and I can prove yeah. it with the intensity of my feelings, but nothing else. That's mm -hmm. I that hadn't crossed my mind. But now that you bring it up, because like Isabella's whole thing constantly is that she's like, 
oh, look at those men who are following us. Like, let's cross the road so that I don't have to flirt with them. Oh, look, we keep running into them by accident. Ha 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 ha. Like the more Isabella is a very the lady doth protest much me thinks kind of person. And yeah. she and John are constantly like, ew, at like each other. And so and yet at the same time, like interesting like but isabel is also always arguing for catherine to like you know oh give my stupid brother a chance like he's the worst but he loves you so much oh my god come be my sister like that kind of thing she she gets engaged to catherine's brother Mm -hmm. and then wants catherine to marry her brother yeah she's in with henry tilney's brother and it's just it feels so um confined and mm. incestuous it's just these she's recycling through all these men mm-hmm. and I, mm. I don't know it just it's I, I wonder if that was austin's wink at the constant incest of high gothic literature that never I occurred think to me but i'm obsessed with that but the the, the, the idea of like it being a parody gothic novel and it explore because there's loads of stuff where they actually talk about books and the influence mm-hmm. of books and uh the they have different kind of interpretations of them that don't it's the most kind of literary critical t- book of austin's that feels like a gothic thing as well that because like with Horace Walpole it starts as a pastiche of a kind of or a pretend old document it, you know it's mm-hmm. making fun of older forms of literature and I kind of felt that degree of sort of reflexivity in a text has a kind of gothic component to it at least into the 18th century and then the 19th century it becomes a kind of conscientiously textual genre like Dracula as well I feel like that that sort of trope that's with Shakespeare that's like in all the texts isn't it sort mm-hmm. of textual self reflexivity but it almost kind of gets pushed into the gothic hark at you this is why we have you on the show man oh okay cool that's, that's what I, just um, bollocks. But, i okay, i cool. also think she's <laughs> very well she winks at the architecture a lot too because like one of the reasons catherine is so excited to get invited by eleanor who's henry's sister to stay with her like indefinitely at northanger abbey is that it's northanger Abby, she's like, oh, ho, ho, the monasteries were dissolved and your family got a place that hopefully is crumbling and full of the, the ghosts of old monks who used to live there. And then she gets there and she is so disappointed that the Tilneys have kept up a nice regime of like updates and improvements and keeping the house up. And she's like, well, that's disappointing. <clears throat> and then like, you know, I think. <laughs> yeah, right. And then I think some of the kind of more famous passages uh, of like, you know, oh, she goes to open the the chest and what's in there. It's a blanket, you know, or oh, she finds, you know, a paper in the back of the wardrobe. What is it? It's a laundry list. Oh, like she's prepping like, you for a jump scare? Very much so. Happen. Like at one point, like her candle goes out and she's like, dear God. And and there's there's a great moment where Catherine's like, I must stay up and watch till midnight. And and the next line is like midnight came and Catherine had been asleep for half an hour like that is why that is why i am obsessed with her interesting well that, yeah you're right they're all, they're where... sorry carry on go right no i was just gonna say i really love the part where she's like i can't entirely remember what happens but she gets so shocked when henry comes up this particular staircase and she's like what are you doing here and he's like i'm just trying to go to my room he's like this like, is my house yeah he's just like i was here and this staircase will take me to where i need to be yeah he's like the shortest anywhere else the shortest way between the stables where i just was because i just got home and my rooms which are just past you is this staircase so that's why i'm on the staircase incidentally what are you doing in my dead mom's room like hold on hold on go ahead roddy oh and i was just gonna say that you know following the theme of just like gothic novels or 
driven by women getting things done is just that Catherine kind of takes that to the absolute extreme where there's not even actually the hint of a gothic novel, but she's going to make it happen, um, even if it ostracizes her from her friends. And, you know, I think that that sort of play, I don't know if Austin had that in mind, but that's one sort of play on the genre that I was really um, intrigued in because there's always the whole like, oh, here's this sweet, precious ingenue who just finds her way into this situation and just, you know, oh no, the world is awful. And it's like, yes, to an extent, the world is awful, but not because there's ghosts and murder, just because there are men who do horrible things without any accountability. And also sometimes your friend's father is kind of a jackass, and that's but the he's thing, not like, a murderer. Like the mundanely <laughs> horrible things are the focus of, of this. Like sometimes this girl who you thought was your friend is actually like the worst and sometimes her stupid brother won't let you out of his stupid car and sometimes <laughs> you know somebody's yeah somebody's dad is and they make this a little more explicit in like the 2007 adaptation with Felicity Jones where Henry says something along the lines of like no he didn't kill my mom but like he kind of killed my mom by emotional neglect which is not as uh explicit in the novel but is kind of hinted at and mm-hmm. uh and i just i feel that's, like austin's, kind of the whole message of the book right right <laughs> i mean i feel like austin's it. sort of underlying message in this book is like you don't have to have a gothic novel for like trash men like you can find those mm-hmm. anywhere <laughs> just because you're paranoid it doesn't mean everybody's not out to get you is that, now, is that the message of the I, text? I have something to say that is not going to take us on any tangents because of course it's going to derail us and then i really want to get to something that i think daniel was going to say but uh perhaps i would posit that when she was going to open the chest or maybe go up the stairway this was an unfinished text we don't know whether or not jane austen didn't have sticky notes that said add scares in here for later go over That's to daniel point. yeah what was i going to say i don't know i thought you i thought well well, I was just I, I was just agreeing with the idea that, that, that the fact that she expects something to be scary, but then it isn't, is it itself a sort of shock? Uh, yeah, I like that. Did, but maybe you're right. And maybe, maybe, maybe she the, had sticky the notes. The final draft would have had a kind of a bear or something. That could be. <laughs> uh, and just to go back on the uh, architecture, listeners, we are uh, lucky enough to be joined by an actual Abby. Um, Abby, thoughts? Yeah, good point. Yeah. You feel seen. I do Roddy's, feel seen, Roddy's I eyes. feel cherished, um, and I am a gothic weirdo, so I just, I really feel like, I like that this is a whole thing has been constructed around me. That's right, really. exactly. Celebrated. You get Maybe it. should be dissolved. <laughs> <laughs> Anyone made that joke to you? They kind of no! Dates. A lot of historians are going to be really mad if that happens. <laughs> All I'm saying is, if you ever murder me, you can make that joke as you lower me into the vat of acid. Time for the dissolution. Of, yeah. yeah. Okay. Very great. Does Austin have? Does Austin have any more gothic-ish moments or flares in her writing outside of this book? Has she traipsed into that? Mm. We've said manners. We've said romance. The juvenilia is all very. Um, parodies a lot of genres uh, yeah. i think it's, it's love and friendship that ha- it might have some moments she's more interested in spoofing novels of uh sensibility though even to go so far as to you know name one book after it yeah, yeah. this then, was my other question is to the to the to the, the academics in the room how do you how do you feel about meta books books referencing oh, love them. of course we love okay. them it feels like a little in joke like <laughs> we're the moon girls at the party and we get the joke but i don't know if everyone and then you does. get to use the word intertextuality exactly mm-hmm. it's kind of an ambiguous thing though isn't it i mean like i was saying earlier that with the first novels 
were metatextual, weren't they? And it almost feels like a bit old hat. It doesn't feel as adventurous as it could be when you think of it in those terms that like Don Quixote is a metatextual book or intertextual. And but then you think that like the sort of arch realist book, like um Madame Bovary or something, is also really about somebody who read too many books and mm-hmm. kind of made a few wrong decisions as a result. So I kind of I mean are, are all the books meta books or maybe none of them? And maybe you should just hide it. I would argue that most of them are. I mean, just if you kind of go down the line, it seems like a lot of these books are in response to one another because mm. these were, I mean, a lot of art then were were just people responding to one another. Like we, I love to, um, I can never remember the particular person's name, but like I love to talk about how like music beef is not a new invention that has been around as long as music has been existed from, you know, Beethoven running some guy out of, I think it was Vienna or Milan by taking his orchestration, turning it upside down and then improvising off of it. And the man was so ashamed that he just never showed his face there again. Same thing with books. And then I'm veering away from the Gothic, but you guys did an episode on Candide, which we know is Voltaire just being a jerk to uh, Leibniz, I think, who said, you know, we live in the best of all possible worlds. And he's just like, oh, yeah, this is the absolute best of all possible worlds. And I'm going to prove that by making every horrible thing happen to this one glorious idiot that I'm going to make the centerfold of this novel. It's just there the books there's always some sort of response going on whether it be to other books or to tropes and things like that um which is where sort of the idea of subversion kind of comes along so i think most books are meta at this point if not all most books are like a mesh work Mm. a gilga mesh work um and anytime you mentioned that book by Voltaire, I want to say yams at the end of it. it makes me think of Thanksgiving. This mm. is all I have to contribute to the podcast. That should have been the Thanksgiving special today. Yeah. <laughs> uh, wait, I think I had a couple more quick. Oh, um, I that's this a tangent. So I want to make sure everyone has had everything they have to say about the three texts that we really dove into. Was there anything left we left on the table before I? My last thing that I want to say is Jane Austen said, "Clergy child writes." Uh, I am a clergy child, so is she, so is Catherine Moreland. This is my final comment. All right. Is that like a military brat? In in its way, I mean, people do ask me, why? (laughs) How do you get from West Virginia to Detroit? Mm -hmm. Uh, And I mean, like, there's a a road, but also, like... You, You pray. Well, yeah, that too. Uh, and, you know, sometimes your uh, your dad leaves to work for a bishop, and so you just go with him. Uh, oh, wow. But most of the time, it's like sometimes people ask me, like, oh, how do you feel about, like, the Mr. Collinses? Like, in or just, like, Mr. Collins as a character, because, like, oh, like, that guy's a clergyman, but he's not very nice. And I'm like, uh, yeah, I've been to diocesan convention, and I would pay so much money to raise <laughs> Jane Austen from the dead, sit her in the middle of diocesan convention, and see what she comes up with. Like, I look at Mr. Collins, and I'm like... That is a woman who knew 26-year-old New Ordinance because that is a 26-year-old New Ordinance. Anyway, what, here, here what diocese is, is, is Detroit in? Michigan, which is actually only... That's a whole diocese. No, this only this part. So there's the Diocese of Michigan, oh, yeah, yeah. Western, Eastern, and then, Northern. Then the Copper Country, what, is that a different... Yeah, so Copper is Country that... is up here and it's the Diocese of Northern yeah. Michigan. So two, wow. 
We have who's four. The bishop of the bishop? Who's the, who's uh, the bishop of that? Then? There are currently <laughs> no. Oh, there is. No, there is a bishop in northern <laughs> Michigan. Uh, East and west don't currently have a bishop, so mine is doing the pastoral stuff, and she's like, "This has got to end. You guys have to pick new bishops." So what? So if any any listeners out there are thinking of <laughs> getting into the bishop, if any of you know someone who, and I cannot stress this enough, is not nuts, uh, who is eligible for the bishopric in the Episcopal Church. Hit up the Diocese of Eastern and Western oh, Michigan. Open call then, right. I mean, <laughs> career change for you. Oh, I said, can we get callers? Can, can we do that? <laughs> we need to interviewing these people. Um, I'm going to tell my dad about this. He's going to be like, to how did you get there? And I'm going to be like, I keep telling you, Jane Austen, most important clergy child in British literature. And ah. yes, I do think she's more important than the Brontes. I said it. Clergy Child sounds like a horror film as well, doesn't it? Clergy Child. Ah, uh, yes. In some ways. Perhaps written by Edgar Allan Pugh. Oh, that is no. terrible. No. <laughs> Jeff, 20, 27 years of my life can't be distilled. Jeff, um, get to your tangents. <laughs> no more jokes from you. Okay, my only tangent was I think I heard on the last episode of Save Me From My Shelf that Halloween isn't a terribly big thing over there. It is it, not. As it is here. That sounds like a beautiful. You life. guys gave us Hammer Horror. Come on. Um. Well, I, every day. Is a you bit guys gave us Christopher Lee. Yeah. I mean, as I said, <laughs> it's always a bit scary. Anyway, we don't really need a special day. <laughs> okay. Celebrate it. We keep it in our heart always. I think. <laughs> yeah, All Daniel right. doesn't really have many memories of Halloween. Your your uh. What? It's all a haze. Your Halloween costume was what? Just you once wore some glow-in-the-dark fangs or something. Yeah. I don't know. Do you, do you guys have a favorite costume from your youth? I was not raised with Halloween because my parents were like, there is an actual religious holiday the next day that we don't want to be overshadowed. So I grew up in an All Saints oh. household. Well, you, have a, you just double them up. That. No, my parents right. were like, it will confuse her little mind. She can have candy on November 1st. I was a very classic Christopher Lee, Bella Lugosi Dracula one year with a cape and the whole thing and the little medallion and slick back hair and the teeth and the blood and the whole thing. Uh, so that's not an original answer, but it's an appropriate answer for this podcast. And, and the question as well. Yeah. yeah. Roddy is thinking hard about this. <laughs> I'm trying to remember every Halloween costume that I've ever had. I'm and trying to I remember. feel like there was a favorite one at some point. But didn't you I ask can't. your mom to help you be Hellboy one year? Grown oh cynical. no! So this is what happened. I wanted to. I went to go see. Sorry if I make anybody feel old. Um, the Phantom Menace for my fifth birthday, oh, and I wanted right. her to paint my face to look like Darth Maul, and she refused to do it. <laughs> um, so that's what that was. Um, my mom will be very happy to know that she once again came up on the podcast. She like tries to keep a tally at this point. Um, I don't know. I was very big on Halloween um, as a child, but I don't know if I had a particular favorite costume that I can think of. I really just like handing out candy and then like seeing little little babies in pumpkin outfits that are just like 
thank you. And I'm just like, you're welcome. And then, you know, they run off to go wreak havoc with their sugar rush. So I so being a children's librarian, I do occasionally get to see the babies not even on Halloween in their little pumpkin outfits or like like their little bears. And they've got, you know, jackets with hoods and the hoods have ears on them. And that is one of the best parts of my job at this time of year. Yeah, it's just it's fully for the kids at this point because they have not experienced the horrors entirely yet. So, you know, I just want to let them have fun and give them candy and offer some joy. So So we've got in in this life. (laughs) Yeah. But yeah, I can't think of it. Well, I already want to invite you back for another podcast in a few months, and I feel like an easy one would be our favorite. I mean, this is this is tried and true territory for Roddy, but I would love to pick the brains of the Save Me From My Shelf hosts, perhaps. And now we're having an on-air meeting about our next podcast, but maybe we do dive into villains with these two. Villain weirdos. That's my pro- proposition. I see no problem with that. Um, yeah, yeah. Villain. Villainy in all its many forms i mean we kind of covered that with <laughs> thanks for that daniel yeah. little gem of wisdom is, is it villainous to uh withhold one's talents for the diocese of east michigan <laughs> i think uh, that people should should speak to the lord about that and be like well yeah is being a bishop a fun job no does someone have to do it well the church is literally called the episcopal church for that reason so yeah for the love of God, my bishop is tired of traveling the entire lower peninsula to do confirmations. Um, or become yeah. a Presbyterian. Maybe that's the message. No, it's uh, not the message. That's okay. not, <laughs> not <laughs> for me, at least. I'm looking at my bookshelf to pick what villain I'm going to make my personality <laughs> for could, the next podcast. Right. Like, I'm, like, thinking about, like, the I'm... villain John Calvin. Uh, that's... <laughs> We can certainly discuss. We can. The last time I was in, I was in Edinburgh with my parents several years ago, and my parents had both been before. We're walking up uh, the the high street. My mom goes, you know, John Knox is like buried over there under that car park. Do you want to go see his grave? And simultaneously, my dad and I go, no, because we are. I've seen what he was saying, Andrews. Yeah. Um, yeah. Although David Tennant okay. does a very good job of playing him in an otherwise fairly mediocre. Mary Queen of Scots. Oh film. yeah, that is good. That yeah, uh, he is. Point. And again, extra That's funny because he film. too yeah. is a clergy child, and his father is actually a Presbyterian Church of Scotland minister. It's, wow. There's not that many of us. I have to know who we all are. You Listen, control the media with clergy children, don't they? I've noticed. Yeah, they're everywhere. <laughs> they're everywhere. Margaret Hale in North and South, uh, which is another novel I would love to discuss sometime. Where that's the villain there is capitalism. Okay, I've got mine okay. for the next. I've got mine for the. I'm gonna roll up and be like, okay, like hear me out. The villain. Javert, Les Miserables, it's, it's, he's a really good cop, and that is the problem, is he's really good at his job. All right. Well, I didn't catch Jean Valjean, so is he that good? Well, so but we can talk about how policing cop. ultimately does not achieve <laughs> its stated ends. And even I mean, if he... Once again, very on, on brand Wait, for... Is it in bad taste if I make like a bridge too far pun about no. Javert? Okay. <laughs> I'll laugh at that one. I'll laugh at that one. That's a good one. <laughs> or has that bishop sailed? No, see, you um, lost it no, that quick. <laughs> no. And the bishop only anyway. comes in at the first part of the book. But that bishop has sailed. Yeah, All no, right. I know. Uh for the for our dear guests, <laughs> would you like to uh promote anything or tease anything or tell folks about where, uh, more about your podcast or where to find you or all that good stuff? Yeah, you can find us wherever you listen to podcasts. Um, we are on Twitter at 
SMFMS underscore podcast. We're on Instagram and TikTok at Save Me From My Shelf. We take requests as well. So if you like what you hear and you want us to cover a book, please let us know. And uh, yeah, just thanks for having us. Also, we really appreciate it. Also, you have it. these fun little teasing guessing games about what you're going to do next. People can follow along. You Roddy have... and I do text each other about those. <laughs> We're like, what well, is this week's guys, clue? What, you guys got the, what the list going ahead a couple of episodes, so you're not allowed to guess until the episode after our second Poe episode. Sure. See, I was just simply going to pretend that we had never seen the list because, in part, I have already forgotten it. Um, but <laughs> yes, <laughs> yeah, no, same here. Yeah, that, that guessing game means a lot to me. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we're like, oh, we're looking away. We haven't seen this. We haven't seen this. Um, <laughs> Thank you for joining us, Abby and Daniel. And yeah, and thanks to your manager for making this yes, work. Yes, thank I you know so much. Really and sorry, really time zones you. are hard, but we fixed it. Yes, and um, Roddy, thank you. No problem. For we in. don't know your name, so you're just the ghost of this podcast, I guess. But thank you, unseen person in the distance. Oh, in studio too. <laughs> and uh, you're welcome, Sam. Wow. Oh, disembodied thanks, voices Sam. for thank Halloween. You, Sam. Thank you, Mary Graham. <laughs> thank you, Jeff. Uh, thank you, listener at home, for joining us for another ostentatious episode of A Little Too Quiet, the Ferndale Library podcast brought to you by the friends of the Ferndale Library. Please remember to rate, review, subscribe, and tell your friends about this silly little awesome little podcast that we do. Uh, we'll be back next week with more. Thanks for listening. <laughs>